Hi, and welcome to Macrina's Key, the podcast where we talk about theology for every single season of life. I'm your host, Sarah Evans. Every fortnight, we discuss systematic theology in bite-sized portions. And along the way, we're learning to see and know God in every season of life, whether we're in the spotlight, on the edge, or being faithful in the mundane. I'm so excited to have you with us. Let's get started. everyone and welcome back. I'm really glad that you have decided to join me here at Macrina's Key this weekend or this week, depending on when you are listening. Um, A couple of quick announcements as we're getting started um, before we get into things. I feel like I've done a lot of sort of announcements about little changes here and there over the past probably month or so. But you know, I think some of that just has to do with, you know, reimagining the way that things are going to go or recognizing that the way you first envisioned something is not actually feasible or that your life kind of takes a different path um, in terms of time management, you might say. So we um, talked a couple weeks ago about how it's going to shift from doing weekly episodes to fortnightly or every other week episodes, which has been really helpful, I think, for my family. Um, A little bit less pressure, especially as we've just managed an international move and we have a baby coming in about six weeks, you know, give or take, because babies kind of come whenever they uh, feel ready. And um, my husband has started um, a full-time job since moving back to the States, which has been really great. He's really enjoying that, but it's been a real shift after having a couple of months off in the midst of our transition um, from one country to another, right? So there's just been quite a bit of change in our life, and hence we shifted, um, well, I shifted with you all from doing weekly episodes to fortnightly. The other thing that I wanted to kind of update you on is, has to do with the website, really. So a number of my listeners listen directly on the website, which is awesome. I'm really glad that I'm able to have that platform there. It's accessible and useful for people. When I built the website, it had a blog section that was already um, installed on it. And I've decided... Um, to not continue updating the blog as such. You know, I've been reading this book recently, actually about J.R.R. Tolkien, and um, I'll be talking about that probably at some point because it's been such a fascinating read. But one of the sources that the author uses calls him one of the last great letter writers of um, the Western world or the English-speaking world, something along those lines. And it really struck me that there's quite a qualitative difference between blogging, which is permanently available for the masses, for people to just sort of skim and peruse and then go on their merry way. There's a difference between that and writing a letter that has a real sense of intentionality um, and focus in terms of who it's being written for and why it's being written and the kind of relational aspect and goals that underlie that. And I was really convicted that I'm not much of a blogger in the first place. It's not really my thing. And so I didn't need to be dedicating time to a blog, but I, as I want to be entering into relationship with my listeners, really so that we can be learning together um, as co-image bearers 
and co-laborers for Christ, I decided it would be better to give my time to something like a newsletter. And while I recognize there's a difference between a newsletter going out to a number of people, many of whom I've never met in person, versus a handwritten correspondence with a dear friend, it still um, has a different kind of feel to it, right? It has a different sense of privacy and relationality and intentionality that a blog does not have in quite the same way. So I will not be updating the blog on the website, and I may eventually take it down because there's only a couple of different posts up there anyways. But I would instead encourage you to go onto the website and subscribe to the newsletter. You can do that at the bottom of, I think, every page on there, but at least at the bottom of the front page. You should be able to subscribe to the newsletter, and I won't be sending out junk. I don't have time to curate junk for people. Um, I'll just be sending out probably a monthly newsletter with some theological reflection, some thoughts on books that I might be reading or finding interesting. Um, I'd really love to fill it with vibrant imagery that matches what we're talking about on the podcast um, and resources and whatnot. So I would really encourage you to uh, get onto the website, macrinaskey.com, and subscribe to the newsletter if that's something that you feel would be useful for you um, in your journey of learning more about who God is and learning to worship him um, for all that he is and all that he's done for us. So with that in mind, sorry, that was a little bit of a longer um, announcement than I anticipated, but I wanted to give you some of the background thoughts behind that. We are going to dive into the next of our we series on God's attributes. So this is week three, if you can believe it. In the first week, we went over the fact that there are different ways to categorize or talk about God's attributes. In that episode, I mentioned that um, I was going to adopt John Feinberg's system of non-moral and moral attributes. And that isn't because it's a better system than others. It's just because it's the one that I'm most familiar with. And I think it's an easy way to distinguish between the things which we can emulate, which are God's moral attributes, and the things that are totally unique to God. Um, Those are his non-moral attributes. And then I spent um, a couple of episodes surveying the major non-moral attributes, the things which are basically true only of God and thus set him apart from creation in a really distinctive way. We talked about infinity, aseity, immensity, and things like omniscience and omnipotence. If you've stuck with, stuck with me through all of that, well, first of all, I should say, good job. It's quite a lot to wrap our minds around. But I hope it was also clear last week how integral this is to our life as Christians, especially our worship and our prayer life. This week, we are going to be talking about God's moral attributes. And I think it will be even more evident how God's character shapes our worship and our confidence or our hope, which is predicated on who God is. I think it will also be clear how God's character should shape our own outward lives as Christians. Things like who we should be and what we should do, that's based on who God is and who God reveals himself to be in relationship with us and with the rest of the created order. Okay, so that's been a pretty long intro. Let's get stuck in on some of this. I should start by saying that in some ways, I don't love the language of moral versus non-moral. It probably plays on some angst I still have from Sunday school as a kid and the morals of each Bible story, which I don't think is an accurate way for us to really, or it's not a full and rich way for us to look at scripture. 
I will say I don't like that this language of moral and non-moral might suggest to some of us that God's only interested in morality, as in keeping score of our sins. That is personally who I thought God was for a long time, but I've come to see that God is much bigger than right and wrong, and our concept of holiness should really be broadened to be more than an idea about keeping a list of rules. Holiness is about fullness of life and being set apart for a purpose, rather than just merely keeping that list of restrictions and rules. And so by using the language of moral versus non-moral, I don't want to suggest that God is some kind of a moralistic rule keeper. That's not what I'm trying to get at here. And that's not what Feinberg is trying to get at either in terms of the source that I've decided to use. On the other hand, I do think that the language of moral attributes can be helpful because it does set a kind of standard. When we talk about justice, we need to talk about God's justice rather than just human justice, because our notion is so often skewed by our culture, an innate desire for revenge, even economics, and a cost-benefit analysis. Those kinds of things shape the way that we understand justice. But God's justice is perfect and gracious. It's holy and beautiful. Ours will simply never measure up. When we remember that God is the standard in the items that we're going to discuss, I think it really helps to kind of up the ante on the gospel. We'll see how short we fall. And I think we can all acknowledge that each of us often fails to practice growing in God's likeness with regards to these attributes. And this demonstrates that we must fall on the grace of Christ's work in saving us and rely on the Holy Spirit as we wrestle with our ongoing sin. So our understanding of God's moral attributes should always increase our awe of his love for us and his redemptive work on our behalf. So while I don't want to make it seem like God is a moralist, because he's not, that's not what we see in scripture. I think this way of categorizing does remind us that God defines the parameters on his attributes and that we do fall short in our imitation of him. And that generates our need for his grace. So what are some of these moral attributes? Feinberg really begins his description of the moral attributes with holiness. Um, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with Feinberg's approach, but I think the first one that we should really start with is talking about that God is personal. In a sense, this doesn't maybe fit what we think of as being a moral attribute. Being a personal isn't something like justice or love, right? But it's really important for us to remember that God is personal in the sense that God um, enters into relationship with us. God is not a force. God is not a sort of principle. Um, God's not a kind of, you know, entity that just floats around out there kind of guiding things. God is person. God is personal. What does that mean? Well, really that goes back to a lot of what we talked about with the Trinity, that God is in relationship with himself, with the three persons of the Trinity who are united in all things and yet are distinct and able to interact with one another. 
God is personal in that he interacts with his creation. He interacts with us in a variety of ways, and he chooses to be available to us just in the same, well, not in the same way, but in a similar way to how you and I choose to be available to friends and family, and even to, you know, the person who checks us out at the grocery store when we have to pay for our items. So we need to remember that God is personal, and I think that is an important way of undergirding our study of the moral attributes. It's important because it helps us to have a sort of background awareness of why it matters that God is holy or just or loving. God, um, in terms of justice, if he were simply an impersonal force, the kind of thing that is portrayed in, say, the Star Wars films, um, just kind of like an animating life force, if that was how we understood God and then related his justice to that, then there would be a real um, lack of connection between God's justice in what needs to happen in creation in order for things to be correct or to be moved forward in a holy and righteous way. There'd be a real distinction between that and God's love for creation, because the force in something like the Star Wars movies doesn't have feelings. It can't love. It can't express um, affection or affirmation for anything that it is animating. Instead, it just is. And so it's so impersonal that there could be a real caustic and a real um, frightening aspect to something like justice. And so having that background awareness that God is personal, that God interacts with himself and that he interacts with us, and he even interacts with the non-human created order is really helpful for us, I think, in helping to undergird and provide a better framework for some of the moral attributes. Feinberg doesn't um, address God being personal um, in quite the same way. Um, and he doesn't place it at the beginning of the moral attributes. And that's fine. I don't know that a lot of people do, but I think it's important in terms of helping to frame some of the discussion here. So like I said, Feinberg does start with holiness. And I think that's a wise attribute to begin with, even though that we're going to do it as number two. (laughs) Holiness underscores all of God's relationship with his creatures. There it is again. God is personal. He's in relationship. Holiness also helps us to navigate the space between who God is in himself and how God interacts with us. So God is holy and set apart. He's distinct and perfect within himself. And God also acts towards us in perfect holiness in every respect. There are several terms in Hebrew that refer to divine holiness. The main one means to be consecrated or sanctified. In other words, God is set apart from that which is profane. We see this idea pretty clearly enumerated in books like Leviticus, which repeatedly instruct the Israelites how to keep separate from what is unholy. Feinberg notes that some people call this distinction God's majesty holiness. God is, to quote my husband's favorite movie, majestical. He is totally and infinitely above and beyond us. And kudos to anyone who can pick up what that movie is. It's a kind of a cult classic. Not only are God's actions and places where he, not only are God's actions holy, also the places where he dwells are holy. And then God's very name is considered holy, as the psalmist in Psalm 103 proclaims. 
In some instances, this connotes God's moral holiness and perfection. God abides by the standards which he lays down for his creation. That isn't because God is obligated to obey some law which is outside of himself. Instead, the purity and moral uprightness of the law flow from God's intrinsic holiness and purity. It's not just that God chooses not to sin, it's that God cannot sin because of who he is within himself and in his very nature. Two other things are related to God's holiness. We might say that they are practical outplays or kind of subcategories of God's holiness. These are God's justice and his righteousness. God's righteousness is like his moral purity. In Hebrew, it describes the ways in which God conforms to an ethical or a moral standard. And of course, that standard is his very own nature. He always acts in tune with that nature. Feinberg rightly says that whenever faced with this incredible majesty and moral purity, the only appropriate response is the one offered by Isaiah, who says, Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. No matter how closely we may be walking with God, we can never surmount the inevitable failures of human weakness and sin. And when we are faced with his holiness and his righteousness— That is the only appropriate response. Because of God's righteousness and holiness, God is necessarily just. Not only is he separate from sin, he despises sin, and he actually promises to judge sin. It's in part due to his moral perfection that he cannot and will not allow sinful actions to go undisciplined. Feinberg discusses several kinds of justice in his book. I don't think we need to go into each kind in detail, but a few things are worth keeping in mind. First, God judges and governs the universe with a righteous and morally perfect manner. He is fair in all of his dealings with us, even when it doesn't feel that way. Feinberg also argues that God deals with humanity through distributive justice meaning that each person gets what they deserve rather than God dealing with us in a generalizing blanket punishment. You can think about this, again, going back to that aspect of God being personal. He deals with us individually, and he works with us on a personal, um, relational level. He does not just sort of mete out justice in this blanket sense that is applicable to everyone. There are certain things that are applicable to everyone, And yet there are ways in which God works tenderly and lovingly with each one of us. I tend to agree with Feinberg in that kind of an argument, if only really based on my own life. How often does it appear that God deals with me differently than with some of my peers or even with my husband? But because God knows all of us intimately, he works with us according to what he knows will most clearly draw us to him. Something like the force can't do that because it's not in relationship. It's not personal, but God is personal. And so he's able to deal with us according to our needs in order to draw us closer to him. Even when he is disciplining us, that's the goal. I think that's really helpful and really important for us to remember in an age of things like cancel culture, where we just want to often, people are treated um, quite black and white 
Um, And yet we can remember that God does not treat us in that way, but that he is tender and loving even in his justice and that he's always working to draw us towards him. Finally, I think it's clear in the biblical account that God does not deal with us in terms of human justice. Most of us will have heard the phrase, an eye for an eye, which is intended to say that justice ought to be proportionate to the crime committed. In fact, that move in the Levitical law to say it should be an eye for an eye is actually a redress of other legal codes at the time where crimes were severely punished. For instance, stealing could result in the loss of one's hand. And that's quite a jump for someone who is starving to steal an apple and then to lose their hand. Whereas the Levitical law is dressing that down and saying, no, these things need to be proportionate. Even though the Old Testament does correct the human tendency towards revenge, this doesn't begin to describe how God judges us because he knows our inner person and because he desires all people to come to him. God will exact a form of justice that is restorative and perfect in ways we cannot yet imagine. And I think that's really important for us to keep in mind as we look towards the future and we wonder what the end times will include in terms of judgment, is that God's justice is restorative. It has a goal. The intent is to bring people to him and to also restore relationships among his creation and among his human creatures. Okay, so that's justice and righteousness, which can kind of be subsumed under God's holiness. The next one that I want to talk about is love. Probably one of the most famous verses in the Bible is John is 1 John, excuse me, 4:8, which says God is love. John's letter goes on to say that we can love others only if we are born of God. And God's love has implications for how we live as much as for how we interact with him. God's love is important because it offers the counterweight in a sense to his holiness and justice. If God was only holy, we might be terrified of him, and probably rightly so. But because God is also perfectly loving, we can enter into relationship with him despite our sin. Because again, that love works with God's justice and his holiness in order to draw us towards him. Feinberg notes that the Bible showcases a real love story between God and all of his creatures. I say that with a little bit of caution because in high school, you know, there was this sort of funny obsession with talking about the Bible as if it was a love letter. (laughs) And while that might be true um, in a very kind of broad sense, I think if you read some of that as a love letter, it's a very confusing kind of relationship that we're getting into. But it showcases this story of God um, desiring to redeem his people because of his love for them. The Hebrew words used to describe God's love, they really get at and describe a level of tenderness and intimacy. It's a love which stands committed to the object with which it has entered into relationship. I want to kind of unpack that. God's love for us is committed. It is faithful because God is committed and faithful to us. And we are the ones with whom he has chosen to enter into relationship. It's not because of something we have done um, in terms of earning that relationship. And it's not because of something we've done in terms of we go out and seek him for that love and relationship and commitment. 
When you look at uh, God's covenant with Abraham, God doesn't covenant really with Abraham. He covenants with himself to be faithful to Abraham, right? And you can even see this again in the book of Hebrews when it talks about Christ replacing uh, the priesthood of the Levitical law. Christ replaces that priesthood, not just because he is the perfect sacrifice, but because he makes an oath. God is faithful and committed to seeing through the relationship that he has entered into with us. That commitment means God's love is unchanging. We see that love in the relationship of the Trinity. Each member of the Trinity loves the others with an unchanging, unstinting, and unfailing love. And then that love overflows in extravagance and abundance towards us. God's love for us is depicted through many different metaphors in scripture. God describes himself as a nursing mother, a hen, um, a husband who loves even an unfaithful wife. God loves his creatures as a whole, but he also loves each individual for the unique creation that they are. This means that God loves all people, not only the ones who trust him and follow the way of Jesus. And God not only possesses the quality of love, he is love. He is thus the very definition of love, as well as the source of all love that we ourselves give and experience and receive. There's an important difference in how God loves within the triune community and how he loves us. I think that's probably worth saying. When we talk about God's love towards us, We're often inclined to mention God's grace and his mercy, right? I've even done that myself so far in this episode. These are aspects of God's love or outflows of his love. But we need to remember there's no recipient in the Godhead who requires mercy or grace because God is perfectly holy. So for that reason, God only exercises grace and mercy towards us, his creatures who have fallen and are unfaithful. The New Testament speaks regularly of God's grace, usually referencing God's offer of salvation, and that is God's saving grace. You may have also heard of the term common grace. Such grace refers to God's loving kindness in sustaining creation and causing rain to fall on crops and restraining evil so that our society does not collapse and maintaining the image of God and humans so that we might be able to develop functional civilizations and have relationships with one another. It's because of common grace that all cultures have beauty and moral codes and other examples of goodness. And common grace falls not only on all humans, but on the universe as a whole as God continues to sustain and uphold it. And mercy is obviously related to grace, but Feinberg points out that the significant difference between uh, that mercy is, sorry, let me rephrase this. Feinberg points out that there's a significant difference in that mercy is given specifically to those whose condition is miserable. So in this sense, God's work in Christ on the cross is an act of inestimable mercy. God's many acts of deliverance are works of mercy, whether that's rescuing slaves from Egypt in the Passover, which is what um, Jewish culture and those of um, Jewish heritage will have just celebrated with Passover, or maybe we are talking about bringing the exiles home from Babylon, which is another example of God's mercy acted out towards those who are in a miserable state. God sees the afflicted 
and the oppressed, and he moves to care for them. That care and that movement might not be in our timing, but we can rest assured based on who God is and on the evidence of scripture and what he has done in the past, we can know that God will move towards the oppressed and he does not turn a blind eye or a deaf ear to those who cry for him. Grace and mercy are not essential attributes then because they depend upon a being um, upon which they may be acted out. So I think I talked about this in our the first episode about who God is, that there are essential attributes. Those are the things which are true to God no matter what. And then there are attributes that are not essential, things like grace and mercy, because God doesn't express grace and mercy within himself. God doesn't need mercy um, within himself between the Father and the Son. Instead, those are attributes which are, um, we might say, like ad extra. They are expressed towards others, towards his creatures. Specifically, grace and mercy are expressed towards us because of our fallen state. But these outworkings of God's love do provide a really important paradigm for us in our lives. In what ways has God been gracious to us? Or where has his mercy been evident to us? And how can we emulate this in our lives? We should ask, in what ways have we failed even today to be as loving and as merciful and gracious as God is? And then how can we grow in our experience of God's love towards us, which will then transform our hearts and our ability to love others? I think these are really helpful things to think through, not to make us feel guilty, right? We're not doing this sort of moralistic um, rule-keeping thing. That's not the goal here. The point is to be reminded of the greatness of God's love and consider how that should shape our lives as much as God's holiness or his justice. All right, I'm looking at the time, everyone, and I feel bad that these episodes keep dragging out in a sense. There's so much content for us to be covering here um, in terms of who God is. And it is, I really thought I would be able to get through this in two episodes and Right now, I think I need to wrap up the third and plan for a fourth, which is kind of crazy. And yet at the same time, it's not because if we remember that we're talking about the infinite living God, um, we could spend years and years and years talking about this and still never get to the bottom of it, right? We would never plumb the depths of who God is. So I'm going to wrap up here and I want to say thanks again for joining me. And I'm really looking forward to next week when I think we will be finishing out and closing um, the last uh, section of who God is in terms of the moral attributes. If you've got a question on anything I've said here today um, or a comment, or if there's something you'd like to hear more about, feel free to send me an email. Um, my email is key at gmail.com. You could also hop onto the website, macrinaskey.com, and there is a page with a contact form there if you'd like to do it that way. I really love hearing from listeners. I've got a few questions I'm looking forward to answering at the end of our episode next time, and I would love to hear from you if you've got a question or something else that you'd like to hear explored further. Thanks so much for joining me. It's such a privilege to be with all of you. Have a great day. Bye-bye.
I'm so glad you joined me for this episode of Macrina's Key. If you like what you heard, please leave a review. It really helps others find the podcast. And that's the goal here at Macrina's Key, to share the gospel and make theological education available for the benefit of the church in every season. If you want to get in touch, head on over to the website, macrinaskey.com. You can also check out the Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash macrinaskey. There you'll find exclusive episodes and materials for members. I love hearing from listeners, so please sing out and get in touch. Until next time, God's grace and peace to you.